Specialty Story, session number 121. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm excited about our guest today. Now, if you're new to Specialty Stories, my goal here is to expose you to different medical specialties, potentially specialties you never knew existed. And our guest today is kind of unique, where she practices both oncology and palliative care. Our guest today is Dr. Wolf Birchfield, and I'm excited to share her story. We start the conversation by finding out when Dr. Wolf Birchfield first became interested in oncology and palliative care. Where I went to medical school, we had a a little bit of a different curriculum. And so our first, we basically had one year in the classroom, one year in the hospital, one year doing research, and then the final year in the hospital again. But during our second year, we had these intercessions that were when we would all come together as one class and talk about specialties or fields that really spanned multiple disciplines. And so during one of those, one of them was oncology because it really does encompass a lot of fields. It encompasses medical oncology, hematology, radiation oncology, surgery, et cetera. So during that one of those intercessions, I just fell in love with what I was hearing about the relationships that these clinicians had with their patients, the way that they had these sort of intense relationships with patients that were really important to both parties. And while they were sad, they just were very meaningful over time and accomplished a lot together. And I really always thought of myself as somebody who was most skilled as a shepherd, shepherding patients and their loved ones through difficult and scary things. And, but I also knew that I was a really relationship driven person. I always, I mean, that, that was very clear to me. And even doing inpatient medicine, I would tend to get a little distressed because it's such a rotating door of quick relationships. And I knew I wanted something longer. So I really loved it at that. At, I really just loved the idea of it. And then throughout my core rotations, while I enjoyed them to some extent, it became very clear throughout that year that I was meant to be an internist. And so I, it just felt like it really came together. So then during my third year, when I was in the lab, I had, we all have a continuity clinic. So mine was one of the oncology fellows who I had known and really thought was a cool guy. And is now I'm so privileged to call him a colleague and a friend. He had worked with one of the internal medicine faculty who was also palliative care in his continuity clinic during his third year. And because he had sort of been at this medical school for his training. And so I worked with this physician, his name's James Tolsky, and he's a really well-known palliative care physician. And it was in his general medicine practice, but it had kind of a palliative care slant. And so I just thought the way he spoke to patients was incredible. I just thought, you know, I've never seen anyone talk to a patient like this and really understand who they are and then make decisions 
based on who they are, not just what's possible. And so I just thought, okay, well, I'm going to try this on. I'm going to use this year as an, ex- an opportunity to see if, if that feels like me. And it just really did. But I, I knew that oncology was going to be a part of my life. And so starting as a fourth-year med student, I started exploring the possibility of doing both. And I met some other clinicians who did both, some of whom were actually trainees at this institution. And then just it, it, everything just felt right. And I just carried forward with it. And throughout all my medicine rotations in the hospital and in clinic as a resident, especially during my first year, I knew that while I had this interest, I wanted to try and force myself to stay open-minded. I'm someone who's has the habit of being very decisive very early, but I just, <laughs> nothing felt right. Nothing else felt right. I wanted to like a lot of other things because I thought it, they might be less emotionally taxing, but in the end, it just, nothing else ever felt as good as this idea. And now I will admit that now I'm doing this every day. It is, I couldn't be happier. and. If we won the lottery, I would do this for free. <laughs> that's awesome. That's that's one of the like testaments of a good job is like, what would you do for free that you could just do for the rest of your life and then find a way to get paid for it? Exactly. Oh my gosh. I mean, I've promised my husband that I won't do it for free. And that <laughs> seems like a fair end of the bargain. But I, I really, I'm really living my dream yeah. and much earlier in my career than I thought I would feel this way, to wow. be honest. That's awesome. So I, I want to rewind just a little bit to your medical school experience, because I think that sounded super unique. And I'm just looking at your your bio here and you went to Duke. Was it a, is that a special program inside of the Duke curriculum that you did or is, is everybody go through that same curriculum? So at Duke, that is the curriculum. So they call it, quote, the new curriculum, which has been <laughs> in place for decades. And there, I think that there are a number of schools, including where I'm on faculty now, that are doing something more akin to this now. Mm-hmm. But it, it wasn't anything special. That was That's just the only way you can go to medical school there. Now, wow. if you do an MD-PhD, then certainly what happens is you do classroom core rotations and then you do your phd and yep. then you come back to the classroom for that fourth year yep. which is fairly similar to other it's it's sort of similar to other um md phd programs i think but nope this is just how it comes yeah that's awesome so i want to talk about something you mentioned about the just the heaviness of the field and something that you were wondering potentially early on if you could handle that i think a lot of students potentially hear about oncology or palliative care and they think that's cool but number one I want I want to help people live not help them die and and also just the the that weight that emotional weight how do you deal with that day in and day out well so my I will say that my faculty position is 50% protected research time and then 50% clinical and so I do think it would be harder for me personally if I had all clinical time because Mm -hmm. then there's just no, because doing research, you, part of what's cool about doing research is that you get to try or hopefully do, uh, affect change on a greater level, which sort of takes you out of the boots on the ground, intense 
part of clinical medicine and oncology. The thing is this, I I will say there are sad parts about my job. Although I, I, I would challenge anyone who is a clinician in medicine to tell me that there are not sad parts of their job. I think that there, there absolutely are. My mother is a pulmonologist intensivist. There are difficult parts of her job. I have friends who are dermatologists and ENTs and and there are things that are devastating because it, the world is a, is a broken place in some ways. So I think there are always sad things. For me, though, this is what I have to emphasize about my the way that I think most people who would have a job like mine cope. It's not because we're martyrs. It's not because we're super strong or amazing or anything like that. It's because we are relationship driven. And for me, what I find is that the relationship I get to have with the patient is worth all the hurt because that feeds me. It feeds my soul to know, to get to know these men and women, the people who love them and understand and just get to, to soak up their life experience, their wisdom and rejoice with them when things are going the way we're hoping rejoice with them when they mend relationships because their cancer brings the important things into the forefront of their mind and heart and then grieve with them. We grieve we don't just grieve when they die. You know, we grieve when they have a scan that look that shows they're progressing. We grieve with them if they get too sick to do more treatment or they get too sick not to have the surgery they need or any number of things. But I don't and there are, and then I because of this special subspecialty that I do, I don't actually have a lot of patients whom I treat with curative intent. And so the fact is almost all of my patients in my oncology clinic are going to pass away of their cancer and, and not all, but many of my palliative patient, palliative care patients will also pass away of their cancer, but I get to be a part of so much. And it's just, it, it, it is so central to who I am. And I get to be a part of their story in a way that's meaningful to me. And it just makes up for it. It just suits it. It's a bomb. Can you explain that a little bit more about mentioning the the patients that you're seeing, most of them are going to pass away. I've had other oncologists on this podcast who are super uh, uh, positive about their patients because of all the treatments coming down the pipe and, and what's going on. But why are the patients that you're seeing not that hopeful? Well, Well, first of all, and not to pick on you, but I do think that there is always hope. Yeah. And I'll come back to that because there's a real difference between focused hope and intrinsic hope. But okay. so it just depends. So I think there are, it depends on what you treat the, and whether your patients are going to have the chance of getting cured of their cancer or not. And I'll give you some examples. Mm-hmm. So there are some patients whose cancer, the standard of care of managing their localized or curable cancer includes chemotherapy or immune therapy or hormonal therapy or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so those patients, when they would come to an oncologist or a hematologist, you know, whatever, would part of their treatment focused on cure includes one of those treatments. And so they have a reason to see a medical oncologist that is still within the paradigm of cure. So some examples of that would be breast cancer. Many patients with breast cancer end up having a treatment paradigm that sort of looks like surgery, may have radiation afterwards, and then might be put on 
some kind of chemotherapy or hormonal therapy. And that's those medical treatments, the medicines are prescribed by a medical oncologist like me. Mm-hmm. Another example would be colon cancer. Patients with stage three colon cancer, some with stage two, controversial, but they would have their surgery, they'd have a colectomy, and then they would see a medical oncologist and would get chemotherapy for a time limited period. And then everyone, and then we follow them and are, we hope that they get cured. So people who treat those diseases have the, those, all those patients who kind of fall into those buckets, the hope of everybody is that they're going to get cured. Now, for my patients, I do genitourinary medical oncology. So I see kidney, bladder, prostate, and testicular cancer. And the, the thing is that most patients who need a medical oncologist and have one of those diseases need me because they already have metastatic or stage four disease. And so the example would be there, there are exceptions to that. There are patients with high-risk prostate cancer who receive hormonal therapy and radiation, for example. There are patients with bladder cancer who end up getting chemotherapy followed by surgery, for example. But most patients who I see with bladder cancer, essentially all patients I see with kidney cancer, most patients I see with prostate cancer, those patients uh, are seeing me and they need medical treatments because they have stage four disease. Testicular cancer is a very different example because even if patients have metastatic disease, they get cured with chemo, but, um, but everybody else, they don't, they don't, it's not a great sign if they need a medical oncologist. And we do have tons of new treatments. I mean, it's, it's incredible what is happening and what I can offer patients and what the treatments can sort of quote buy them in terms of longevity and quality of life and things. But for the disease specific diseases that I treat, most people have stage four disease and that's why they have to see me or get to see me, I guess. Yeah. What led you to, to focusing in on that part of the body as far as cancer is concerned? Well, it's, it's a great mix because (laughs) what's, it's sort of to an oncology audience, they would all nod their heads and say, oh yeah, it is. But even though they all have stage four disease, it's still a great mix because the biology of these diseases is so different that often patients with prostate cancer will live for years, sometimes, and, and sometimes even decades with metastatic disease. And, and often patients with bladder cancer who have metastatic disease are really sick. And then kidney cancer is this incredible world now where patients have many lines of treatment and will live for years and years. And so we kind of see a spectrum of even though many of these folks have metastatic disease, they have very different disease courses, have different treatments available to them, different treatment and cancer-related symptoms. And so it just ends up being kind of a good mix. But the other thing is that I am someone who is extremely collaborative. I am at my best when I am as a part of a really high functioning team. And so the thing that I love about what I do is that I work really, really closely with urologic oncologists. So urologists who do cancer surgeries. And so they, and, and we work in a very interdisciplinary way, especially for patients who are getting treated with the intensive cure, but often they follow their patients for really long periods of time. And even to the end of their life, even if they have metastatic disease. So and that and radiation oncologists is the same way. We see lots, we have lots of patients who we co-manage. And so it's a very, very interdisciplinary field. And so that's the other thing that's really great about it. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good, uh, specifically for you, oncologist and a palliative care physician? 
Well, I think, I, I really think someone who like me is, um, thrives in a team environment and a really an interdisciplinary team environment where, because, you know, medical oncology, depending on what, what disease you might treat or diseases you treat and, uh, what setting, a lot of that is very interdisciplinary, um, between, uh, with a lot of kind of physician representation, of course, advanced practice providers and our nurses are essential, but palliative care is interdisciplinary in a different way in that a lot of palliative care initiatives and programs are very nurse-led or social work-led or chaplain-led. And so we, I, it's really a very flattened hierarchy in palliative care. And so I think being like loving and living for the team are, is, is key. And I also think the other, the other thing is um, being someone who really loves helping with communication is good just because some palliative care, a lot of outpatient palliative care is about managing symptoms, but a lot of it is also helping with communication between either parts of the medical team or patients and their loved ones, et cetera. And so I think really getting a thrill out of bringing people together and helping bridge gaps and making sure everybody understands each other is is a great thing too. And I think also, again, being very relationship driven, not just front in your own work team, but wanting to follow patients longitudinally and be a part of their lives in, you know, a pretty, I guess, intense sort of has negative connotations, but in a pretty important way is something that is, it's sort of like palliative or like um, primary care in that you get to really just dig in and be there for these people. And so that's another thing that I think is great. Are you, for a lot of your patients, are you becoming their primary care physician as they're going through this? Yeah, definitely. So for our metastatic patients, and, and I, that is in no way to denigrate my colleagues in primary care. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I, co I collaborate with them all the time. It's just that if I have a patient who has only a few months to live, you know, again, we're going to be hoping it's longer than that. But ultimately, if they're on stable antihypertensives, then I'm not going to, I'm going to fill those meds for them, assuming that, you know, they are appropriate and their primary care physicians comfortable with that. It just depends. But a lot of times we do take on that role just because we see these folks all the time. I mean, there are periods of time when we see patients weekly mm. or biweekly. And so it's, we just see them so much. And oftentimes they have so many visits at their, wherever they're receiving their cancer care, that it can be difficult for them to go to other visits or even taxing or burdensome sometimes. So we do often some of that work depending on the clinical scenario. Yeah. What does a typical week look like for you? You mentioned that in, in your academic setting, 50% of the time you're doing research. What does that week look like for you? Sure. So my 50% research time role, it makes me a little bit of a zebra now because a lot of, for what it's worth, and, and medical oncology, at least in hematology, a lot of faculty positions are structured to either be sort of 70-30 or 80-20 with 80% being clinical or research and the other part being clinical or research. And, and sometimes, especially at really big cancer centers, a lot of times the way that you can pare down your clinical time if you need more time for research is to get grant funding that, quote, buys back your time. But for me, being 50%, I mean, it couldn't be better. So the way my week looks is that on Monday, I have a full day of oncology clinic. Tuesday, Wednesday are research days. All day Thursday, I have clinic, but it's palliative care in the morning, oncology in the afternoon. 
Friday morning is research and admin time. And then Friday afternoon is palliative care time. Again, I don't do very much inpatient time. And that's because the way our particular uh, program is structured because we have hospitalists on the inpatient oncology services. And so we do consults, but we split it up between all 40 or 50 of us. So we do a few weeks a year. I don't currently do any inpatient palliative care time because I'm just really a devoted outpatient doc. That's just really where I shine. Yeah. Do you feel like you have enough time for family and life outside of the hospital? Yeah. I mean, I had a residency baby and I had a fellowship baby. (laughs) Um, I have the world's best husband, partner, co-parent. And so things are busy. I will not lie in, in telling you. And this isn't negative. It's just different than I had envisioned things would look. Because my husband and I you know, we love our kids. We, they go to school and, um, preschool. We were, you know, poor when we had them because he was in business school and stuff. And so we didn't have a nanny, but, um, and so what we really like to do is we really want to be there for the few hours when our little kids who are four and seven are awake in the evenings before they go to bed. And so we really prioritize being home, you know, between five 30 and when they go to bed and not doing work and just focusing on family time. And then a couple nights a week, we often will have study hall as we call it, where I'll finish up a couple things and he'll finish up a couple things together separately, but together. Um, and so I think there are lots of people who can keep work totally confined to work. And, but the reason that I can't do that now is just because I really want to be home as early as possible in the evening so that I can have that time. But I mean, I'm, a, I'm not a mom on the side sort of person. We're both all in and, um, you know, I get to go have lunch with my daughters at school and go to their school functions because of the flexible time I have in research and get to soccer practice and take them to basketball games and <laughs> do all of our things. So yeah. I just kind of fit, if I have to do things outside of normal business hours, then we'll try to condense it, fit it in so that I can still get sleep, still get exercise every morning and, and work it in, but it's not distressing. It's fine. It's just because I feel great about the time that I get to have with my kids. My husband and I condense it enough that we get time together and, um, we make it work, but it it does work. What does the training path look like to become triple boarded in internal medicine, (laughs) oncology, palliative care, all that fun stuff? Yeah. So the path is internal medicine residency. Mm-hmm. I then did an oncology fellowship and then I did a palliative care fellowship. Oncology is three years. Often it is paired training between hematology and oncology, depending on what you want to do. If you want to do general hemonc or you want to do um, something that, that includes both. Um, and then palliative care is typically one year, although there are a few two-year programs that have a year of protected research time. What was it about palliative care that that led you to say, I, I want more training in this? Because I would assume <laughs> going through a Hemonk fellowship that you're around it enough that you, you pick up what you want to pick up and then you're good to go. Well, I think that has historically largely been the perspective. Mm-hmm. But I will admit that the recent data since about 2012 does not necessarily reflect that fact. There's been the, some really just rich data from p- the palliative care world that demonstrates that when patients with cancer, especially metastatic cancer, meet with specialty palliative care, meaning you know, like a board certified you know, palliative care doc or a palliative care team, whatever, mm-hmm. that they really have, they live better and longer. And so I think 
there, while that perspective was absolutely kind of the the historic dogma, I think it is shifting a little bit towards a more focus on formal palliative care training for those of us who want to practice that. And so what I loved about it was that I I was so passionate about learning how to talk to patients the way Dr. Tolsky did. He just had this way of sitting down with them, connecting with them, and figuring out exactly who that patient is, what makes him or her tick as a human being, and then saying, you know, based on who you are, based on what truly matters to you, this is the type of medical care that is best for you. And it felt like the epitome of holistic care. And I just thought, I can't stop until I know I can do that. And palliative care training is exactly where you learn how to do that. I mean, it's I, I think most of us in palliative care are sort of people who are interested in communication and, you know, can talk to other people fine, but that's, it's, that's what palliative care training is really about. So it was just about being able to really talk to patients the way I thought they needed a doctor to talk to them when, when it really matters. Yeah. What do you wish the, for the future primary care physician listening to this, what do you wish they knew about what you're doing, both oncology and palliative care to help your patients in the future? Sure. So future primary care physicians. Well, number one, you are the lifeblood of our system. You rock. That's number one. (laughs) Number two is that I think I feel a little differently depending on whether I'm wearing my oncology hat or my palliative care hat. I think my, the oncologist in me wants to communicate that, you know, we're trying to provide treatment, even if, even if things look bleak. If the patient's goal is aggressive care, then we're trying to meet them with that. There's so, so much changing in oncology every month. And, you know, based on clinical trial data that's coming down the pike or clinical trials that patients participate in, you know, the game is changing. And so what you knew when you were, when you could know for sure, when you were a medical student, when you were a resident is not necessarily true anymore. And so I think if you're trying to, again, do sort of quote primary palliative care for your primary care patient, it probably is important to talk to the oncologist about what is possible, what's not possible. And rather than making assumptions based on the way that a lot of cancer was historically managed, prognosis that was historically associated with them, et cetera, the palliative care doc in me um, would want to tell primary care doctors that, again, they are the ones who really do most primary palliative care, meaning they are talking to their patients, getting to know them and guiding them to appropriate care based on their wishes, but that it's okay to, to want or need help to really drill down and, and get someone to help you communicate with your patient. And I would generally say, if there's a part of you that thinks, you know, I wonder if a palliative care consult could help this patient, then the answer is usually yes. And so I think if you are even wondering about it, then just put in that consult or give us a call, page us, whatever. And if we're not the right people, we'll tell you where you, where the patient needs to get to, but just, you know, consider it. If you ever wonder, yes, is probably the answer. Yeah. Can you just briefly, I, I know we talk about it a bunch when I have either a hospice specialist or palliative care specialist on just to briefly for again, that, that primary care physician to really understand, like, I, I think a lot of people think palliative care equals death and, and that's not true. Can you just briefly explain 
why someone should be looking at that palliative care uh, of course. Consult. Oh my goodness. This is absolutely my, I mean, this is so important to what I do on a daily basis. So this is a, I'm happy to explain. Yeah. So the way I would think about it is palliative care is specialized medical care for people who need an extra layer of support related to their serious illness. That can be a serious illness that is temporary, that we are expecting to be cured, or it can be something that is incurable. And the care we provide is just to facilitate the best possible quality of life for the patient and their caregivers. The things that we do the most are managing symptoms, helping facilitate communication, helping support patients, their caregivers, and their clinical, their kind of medical team in medical decision-making. Now, hospice is a form of palliative care, but it's, it's more holistic all-inclusive form of medical care with those goals for people who have a life expectancy of six months or less and want to focus on comfort. Okay, good. I think that'll help students really understand. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into medonc and palliative care? So what I wish I knew was that hope looks a lot of different ways and that a big part of being a physician in medical oncology or or in hematology, which I don't practice, but which my colleagues do in palliative care, is helping patients transition from focused hope to more of an intrinsic hope. And by that, which I mean is that patients who are really focused on a very specific outcome, such as the cancer getting cured, living X number of years, and to get helping them grow and cope and transition until they have this more intrinsic, pure hope that's just focused on the idea that, or that's built around the idea that there can still be goodness and beauty in the world, even if their specific goals are not met. And I think that that I really sort of did think that hope was a light switch and either you had it or you didn't. And I realize now that through these really therapeutic relationships, we can help get patients to a place where they are at peace and they do feel a sense of hope, even if we know their cancer is never going to go away, even if we know that's going to be the cause of their death. Because I would have felt so safe and secure in that, knowing that there can still be hope and beauty, even if we can't make their cancer better. Yeah. I like it. What do you like the most about your job? Well, I just, it's a little hard to name. I, I know I really sound sort of, that probably doesn't sound very earnest, but that's really the truth. I, I think I, I love every different piece of it. And I think each piece brings something special that uh, is a good contrast with the others, but I love my team. I work with the most wonderful group of nurses, social workers, and surgeons, and we we collaborate with each other. I have the immense privilege of trusting them and being trusted by them and having not just a work, you know, not just work colleagues, but a work family. But I mean, my patients are incredible and they, they, again, they expose me to a lot of beauty, a lot of grace and a lot of wisdom that enriches me. And, and so I, while again, it, it, it is sad and painful at times when we're grieving with them or for them, but it's, there's, I mean, they, 
they're everything. They're the reason we all do what we do in oncology and getting to spend my life side by side with them is the greatest privilege I could have. With physician burnout seemingly creeping up every year, the the enthusiasm and energy and just joy that you exude is palpable. And and looking how long you've been out of training, it hasn't been that long. So how do you protect that in yourself? And maybe we can help others protect that in the future as well. Well, it's it's something that I think most smart clinicians are thinking about on the regular because it is not a passive thing. It's active. And I've learned, and as I you know, briefly mentioned, my mother is a physician as well. And she has done very, very well with that and has set a good example for me. And I think the things that I do to protect myself are spending time with my kids, my husband, my family, my friends, and being present. So not you know, when I'm reading to my kids at night, I'm not thinking, okay, well, I still have those notes left from clinic. I am with them. And same thing when I'm hanging out with my husband, aside from during our study halls once a week or whatever (laughs) we need, we are with each other and we are really engaged, like sharing in life. And I think that that is a respite from despair. And so I, I really, um, that's for me is really central. The second thing is just being very honest about when I'm hurting, when I'm, and, and talking to my colleagues about it. I really think that there is some real benefit from, you know, venting and also just, again, sharing in these moments of grief and, and also allowing other people to do that because that's real human connection. And it is a lot of times those conversations are very focused on patients or mutual patients, but I think not internalizing it and realizing that it is part of the human experience and something that someone is probably going to validate if you share it with them is very helpful. And I see that being a good model amongst my palliative care team. I think we are very, we're very good at just being very honest and saying, Hey, I need a couple of minutes. I'm just really struggling. I'm really hurting because I just not sure if I'm doing the right thing for this patient or, and just, having those moments a lot. My nurses do it with each other, with me. I do it with my physician colleagues, with our chaplain, with our social worker. And we just all, it just feels like I'm kind of getting, dispersing the burden and giving it away. I also just really try to live a real life. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm not a super exciting person in that I don't, I'm not going skydiving, but I do take vacations. When I'm on vacation, I don't check my email. I go on date night. I go out with friends and I'm not, I'm not allowing work to creep in other things. And this, I I worry that this may sound a little ugly, but I encourage people not to give patients their cell phone number. I encourage people not to give patients their personal email. Heck yeah. (laughs) I encourage people not to allow patients to be part of social media. If that's something that you do. And also realize that your electronic medical record never, ever, ever, ever sleeps. Nope. And so you have to decide when you are done because it's never going to be done. And so um, I, I just, but I, I really think the communication tools and realizing there is a system in place to care for your patient if you are not at work 
that system should not be you. That is not your job because if you get burned out, you can never provide more care for other patients who need you. And so I just really think there are some, I will admit to you, I have heard that there are areas of the country where there's a lot of competition amongst cancer clinics or something like that, particularly mm-hmm. really big cities where there are a bunch of great options. Yeah. And there has been this, I think, escalation of sorts where people feel really pressured to give their cell phone number to their patient because, oh, you know, Dr. So-and-so at such and such <laughs> cancer center does that. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it. You need to be protected. You need to know that you are not actually on call 24-7. And then also, again, this may sound ugly, but I am typically not the physician of record for my patients when they're in hospice. I stay involved as a consultant, but unless there is not a qualified physician, a part of the hospice team, which is very rare, and I can't really even envision a circumstance in which that's the case, I allow the hospice medical director to be that patient's hospice physician of record because I need to know I am not on call every day. I can't, I, if I am at, at a movie with my kids, I'm not going to get a call from a hospice nurse saying that you know, so-and-so needs pain medicines changed. And, and I think that would be in very much in contrast to what a hospice doc would tell you because that's what they do. But for me personally, since I have a clinic practice, I, I try to avoid the creep into my personal time. And it's, I, I, you know, if my patients find this somehow and they listen to it, they may think that it sounds harsh, but in reality, I'm a person and I have to be protective of myself because yeah, if you are not being offensive, you're going to be on the defense and yeah. that you're going to be defending yourself from burnout. Yeah. And I, I think if, if a patient is listening to this, right, I think you are doing your patients justice by protecting yourself so that you can better serve them. I, I, I really, really, truly believe that. No, I really do. Yeah. I, so don't do it. I believe it too. There's always someone there to care <laughs> for your patient. <laughs> what do you like the least? Um, what I like the least is the fact that my, many of my patients are in distress and it's really hard not to internalize that. When I am tired, when I have been in a really busy period, it's, it's difficult not to internalize it. And, and it's something that, again, I think that you can grieve with patients and their family members and not be con- in a constant mourning period. M-O-U-R-N, not mm-hmm. M-O-R-N. Yeah. But I think, um, and that, that's the least. I mean, it, it's awful. There are terrible things that happen to people through no fault of their own. And I sit across, I sit right next to people, touch them, hug them, grab their hand, who are suffering physically, existentially, emotionally, all of those things. And that sucks. It hurts. But the thing is, I just really... I have a mission. My mission is to alleviate that. And I wish that nobody, I wish I could be put out of a job. I wish all cancer is cured. I wish the world was a safe, perfect place where nobody was harmed and everybody was safe and happy. But um, I really believe in what I do. And I think it's, I'm doing good things for people. And so it allows, I mean, that knowledge allows me to keep doing it. But man, it's just, that's the worst. Seeing people suffer is horrible. Yeah. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be? Uh, medoc and palliative care doc? No question. Yes. Any last words of wisdom for the students listening to your enthusiasm and passion and, and potentially thinking about following this journey? Oh, well, 
I have the world's best job. I think this, this combination of fields is a very natural marriage and is the most beautiful compliment. What I will say, and I, in this, we live in such a changing world and in oncology and palliative care. And I think that they are not seen as contradictory, although they were, and some, for many people still sort of are. And I have heard many people who, you know, during interviews, when I told people what I was going to be doing, or even in mentoring sessions, believe it or not, basically said something along the lines of, yeah, that's not a thing. You can't really do that. You need to pick a lane. And what I, and there were times when that crushed me. It hurt deeply. But I have realized, this is what I have realized. <laughs> if they don't get it, that's not on me. And, and I think I really am someone who believes that part of being a professional is deciding that you're going to show and not just tell. And so what I have learned is that there are going to be people who don't get it, but I'm going to show them exactly what I'm talking about mm. over the course of my career. And if they still don't get it, it doesn't matter. I'm not doing this for them. I'm doing it for me and my patients. And, but I think if you're going to do a combination of things that isn't going to make sense to people, sometimes it's okay. It doesn't have to, because if you can go over, under, around, or through them, then it does not matter. And I really just think there is almost always a way to do that. All right, there you have it. Again, that is Dr. Elizabeth Wolf. Birchfield, medical oncologist and palliative care physician. Hopefully this episode exposed you to something new, something different, and maybe got you thinking in a little bit of a different way. And if it didn't, that's okay, because our next guest may do that for you. You never know. And if you haven't listened to any of our previous episodes, don't forget to go back and listen to those as well. You can find everything we do at specialtystories.com. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for free so you can get every episode every week right on your device. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.